0: Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing, oh, wasn't that a dainty dish, to set before the king. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our history series is titled, Sing a Song of Sixpence which we all recognize to be the first line of a popular nursery rhyme by the same name. Nursery rhymes, at least most of the ones we're familiar with in English, have been around for hundreds of years. They almost always offer a song and just enough poetry to make them fun and memorable. But in many of them, there is a hidden meaning, sometimes innocent, sometimes sinister, and often poking fun at the British monarchy, which in times past didn't tolerate criticism very well. Say anything nasty about the king or queen, and your head might well end up on the chopping block or your feet in the fire, literally. Or if you were found guilty of most insidious slander of a king like Henry VIII, or a queen like Mary, Queen of Scots, also known as Bloody Mary, your death might be a slower one, aided by instruments of torture known as silver bells and cockle shells. And one more note, stay tuned at the very end of the episode for a blooper. I've got a good one for you. Here's our first nursery rhyme. Sing a song of sixpence. Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye. Four and twenty blackbirds, baked in a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. Oh, wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? The king was in his counting house, counting all his money. The queen was in the parlor, eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden, hanging out the clothes, when down came a blackbird and pecked off her nose. There are a few different interpretations of the words to this popular nursery rhyme, including one that attributes it to a coded song that Blackbeard's pirates, of all people, used to find new recruits. In this version, sixpence was the amount offered to recruits to get them to sign up. A pocketful of rye was actually a waste bag filled with rye whiskey. The queen, was Blackbeard's ship the Queen Anne, and the other analogies offered are a stretched to say the least. First, Blackbeard had a loyal crew made up mostly of the boys from Bathtown, North Carolina, as you'll find in one of our archived episodes titled, Blackbeard, the Man in the Myth. And secondly, the Blackbird's baked in a pie just doesn't fit with Blackbeard, especially when you do a little digging and find that back in the days of Henry VIII, Cooks actually would place all kinds of live critters under huge, cool pie shells. And although some say that the joke was on the king, I tend to doubt that, as he had a rather short temper and was known to have ordered the quick death of those he didn't like. In truth, Henry VIII liked to play grand tricks on others. It's likely he would roar with laughter as unsuspecting guests would cut into the pie and out would come blackbirds or pigeons or frogs or rabbits. After all the screaming and laughter died down, out would come the real pie. The pie was the size of a big pot, hence the word pot pie. There are a couple of early references, one by Shakespeare, in his Twelfth Night, Act Two, II, Scene Three, written in 1602, where Sir Toby Belts tells a clown, Come on, there's a sixpence for you, let's have a song. And also in Beaumont and Fletcher's bonduka In 1614, which gives us the line, Whoa, here's a stir now. Sing a song of sixpence. Rye seed was used to lure the birds in so the cook's helpers could throw a net over them. Four and twenty blackbirds is interesting and probably refers to Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, one of the most shocking revolutions in English history, whereby Henry VIII declared himself the sole religious authority in England. Ireland, and Wales, issuing edicts in 1534 and 1539, and seizing the property and assets from over nine hundred churches and abbeys, hunting monks into extinction, and ordering the drawing and dismemberment of known abbots and other religious authorities of the time. Terror reigned in England. Again, Henry VIII was not the kind of guy you wanted to surprise with a bird pie, and we haven't discussed all the wives he beheaded. Now with all this money and assets stolen from the church, the king was in his parlor counting all his money. His second wife, the queen, Anne Boleyn, was in the parlor eating bread and honey while all the common folk like us outside starved, and the maid, very likely a reference to Jane Seymour, a lady-in-waiting to the queen, and next in line after Anne Boleyn was disposed of, and whom the king was dallying with behind Anne's back. "'and she was hanging clothes in the garden. "'The blackbirds are those pesky monks "'that the king was hunting down, bitter on the nose, "'which has become a cute little ending to the poem "'where the parent plays the got-your-nose trick "'at the end of the song. "'And remember this one? Ba Ba black sheep, have you any wool? "'Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, "'one for the master, one for the dame, "'and one for the little boy who cries down the lane.' This one goes back to the 13th century when King Edward I, also known as Edward the Longshanks because of his very long legs, and he was also known as the Hammer of the Scots. Like many of his forefathers, the kings of England before him, he spent a lot of his time defending and developing his kingdom, being involved in battles, sieges, and even hostage situations. Edward didn't fight wars from a desk, and it certainly wasn't a quiet life by any means. During a long, battle-torn return journey back to England from the Crusades in 1272, he was informed of the sad news that his father had died. As a consequence of his father's death, he was crowned king at Westminster Abbey on the 19th of August of that year, 1272. The Crusades had accomplished very little in reality, but cost vast amounts of money, and Edward was now king of England with a very big bill, and needed to pay for his part in the Crusades. Kings had a way of raising quick money back in those days. They taxed the poor. Remember Disney's Robin Hood when the sheriff of Nottingham would hold the poor church mice upside down until the coin tumbled out of their pockets? That's what kings do. The Egyptian pharaohs taxed the use of cooking oil. Emperor Vespasian of Rome levied a urine tax. The czar of Russia, Peter the Great, put a tax on souls and another on beards. But King William III knew that people liked to look out of windows, and he needed money, so he created a window tax. Prime Minister of Britain William Pitt the Younger knew people liked to wear hats, so he put a tax on hats. At the time of King Edward's reign, when he surveyed his kingdom, he saw more sheep than people. Even a poor farmer might have a flock of 8,000 spread over tenanted land and would need over a dozen shepherds to herd his flocks. There's the answer tax sheep. Actually, there's a better method of collecting even more money. Simply tax their wool. Then the king will pull in revenue every time the sheep are shorn. It would be like putting a federal tax on haircuts. Whoops, I hope I didn't give away any ideas. So, what's all this got to do with Bob Bob Black Sheep? Contrary to modern popular belief, Bob Bob Black Sheep is not a racist poem but is a genuine nursery rhyme intended to teach babies the sound the sheep make. The nursery rhyme itself is fairly innocent, until we look at the original line at the end. The original "Ba Bob Black Sheep reads like this. "Ba ba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes sir, yes sir, three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who cries down the lane. The last line was changed to make it more appealing. It now reads, who lives down the lane? was the little boy, and why was he crying down the lane? The little boy represents the poor farmer who wasn't happy at paying the king's 66% tax on his wool. The three bags of wool represent the three lots of one-third, one for the master, King Edward I, one for the dame, the church, and one for the little boy who cries down the lane. That's all of us taxpayers. And then... It's ring around the rosy, which goes like this. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. In old days, the British version varied by saying, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Ring a ring of roses, or ring around the rosy, might be about the 1665 Great Plague of London. The rosy being the malodorous rash that developed on the skin of bubonic plague sufferers the stench of which then needed concealing with a pocketful of posies. The bubonic plague killed 15% of Britain's population, hence the fatal sneeze, a-tushu, a-tushu, we all fall down, meaning dead. Some researchers have pointed out that they can't find any references to the words of the song prior to the mid-1800s, and the bubonic plague was centuries before that. The first printing of the rhyme was in Kate Greenaway's 1881 edition of Mother Goose, or the Old Nursery Rhymes. In that game, children form a circle around a single child, that one being the last to fall down on the first try. But the words of the song, especially the British version, tend to indicate that the song is connected to a plague back in 1655. Peter and Iona Opie, the leading authorities on nursery rhymes, remarked, The invariable sneezing and falling down in modern English versions have given would-be origin finders the opportunity to say that the rhyme dates back to the Great Plague. A rosy rash, they allege, was a symptom of the plague, and posies of herbs were carried as protection and to ward off the smell of the disease. Sneezing or coughing was a final fatal symptom, and all fall down was exactly what happened. And from healthdecide.orkahealth.com, about the bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death. The plague has been mentioned in historical accounts for centuries and can be traced over 2,300 years ago to China. The true scourge, however, struck Europe in the mid-1300s and killed 35% of the population, about 43 million people. This huge number of deaths caused the median age lifespan to plummet from 35 years to just 20 years. The bacteria which we now know as Yersinia pestis was carried from China across the east into Europe by Mongolian merchants. It was originally brought to ports by rats infected with fleas which would infest wool, silk, linen, and boxes of goods being transported by ship to ports and cities throughout Europe. The plague spread through every level of society and could not be avoided. It would strike a city, driving terrified residents to escape on boats to safe harbors, thereby unknowingly spreading the disease further and further. The fear of the disease and confusion is said to have increased the level of medical beliefs, one of which was to carry flowers or herbs to avoid the stench of the illness and perhaps the evil that afflicted victims. It was difficult to study the disease as it was highly infectious and death usually came, mercifully, within four days of the first signs of the illness. It is believed that priests and monks unwittingly spread the infection as they would go from home to home to perform last rites. It is also estimated that 90% of priests and 75% of physicians died during the epidemic because of their willingness to minister and serve during the very worst of the plague. Eventually running its course in the 14th century, the plague reappeared in London in 1665 and Marseille in 1680. While many died, it did not reach the same level of infection and death, as did the scourge of the 1300s. It wasn't until 1894 that the disease was conclusively connected to rats and the fleas burrowed in their fur. Mass graves have been found from the European and London epidemics, and the remains were studied in the 1990s. That must have taken some courage. The bacterial genome showed that there is very little difference of the infectious strain found in those human remains when compared to the contemporary Yersinia pepsis bacteria that carries the plague. Is the plague bacteria something to worry about in contemporary times? Probably not, though there are cases reported from time to time, most recently in Oregon. A man cut his finger as he tried to dislodge a dead mouse stuck in the throat of his cat. He quickly came down with symptoms of severe flu, and was diagnosed within days to have the bubonic plague. Because of modern-day medicines, however, he has been treated, as are all cases that may show up around the world. Streptomycin and gentamicin are the antibiotics of choice for this horrendous illness, which has plagued the world for over 2,000 years. Next up is Rockabye Baby. No, not Al Jolson's Rockabye Your Baby to a Dixie Melody, but this nursery rhyme Rockabye Baby on the treetops. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. Here's Smosh.com's take on this one. Unlike other rhymes, whose sinister undertones only become apparent with research, Rockabye Baby boldly states dead infant right at the get go. So how did this high-octane nightmare fuel of a ditty come about? The leading theory is it hails from early U.S. settlers who reported how Native Americans often rocked their babies in cradles suspended from tree branches, allowing the wind to gently sway them to sleep, or a gust to hurl them into oblivion. A competing take is that it's actually about birth, with the tree as the mother, the wind as her contractions, the bow as her water breaking, and the cradle and all as the placenta that would not only make it a poem about life instead of death, but would also give it all the soothing bedtime story qualities of a child imagining his own head crowning from his mommy's nether regions. Here's our take on it. The first printed version from Mother Goose's Melody, London, 1765, has the following lyrics. Note that if you start in England, you can usually find the answer to these nursery rhymes. Hushabye baby, on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will fall baby, cradle and all. This interpretation states that the baby is the son of King James II of England, who is widely believed to be someone else's child, smuggled into the birthing room in order to provide a Catholic heir for James. In this interpretation, the cradle represents the Stuart monarchy. And then our runner-ups. Originally titled Hushabai Baby, this nursery rhyme was said to be the first poem written on American soil according to 1904's Book Lover. There's no official record, however, that proves when the song was written. Some sources claim it came as early as the 1500s. It first appeared in print in Mother Goose's Melody in 1765 and contained a stern morality lesson in the footnote. This may serve as a warning to the proud and ambitious who climb so high that they generally fall at last. We tend to side with Mother Goose on this one. Then there's Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary, How Does Your Garden Grow, With Silver Bells and Cockle Shells, And Pretty Maids, All in a Row. The oldest known version was first published in Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook, 1744, with the following lyrics, Mistress Mary, Quite Contrary, How Does Your Garden Grow, With Silver Bells and Cockle Shells, And So My Garden Grows. One theory posits that Mary Mary, quite contrary, may be about Bloody Mary, daughter of King Henry VIII, and it concerns the torture and murder of Protestants. Queen Mary was a staunch Catholic, and her garden here is an allusion to the graveyards which she was rapidly filling with Protestant martyrs. The silver bells were thumb screws, while cockle shells are believed to be instruments of torture which were attached to men's parts. The how does your garden grow, is also said to refer to her lack of heirs or to the common idea that England had become a Catholic vassal or branch of Spain and the Habsburgs. It's also said to be a punning reference to her chief minister, Stephen Gardner. Quite contrary is said to be a reference to her unsuccessful attempt to reverse ecclesiastical changes effected by her father, Henry VIII, and her brother, Edward VI. The pretty maids all in a row is speculated to be a reference to miscarriages or her execution of Lady Jane Grey. This was a rough time for Protestants. Then the Catholics all caught their grief later, and that provided the inspiration for this next nursery rhyme. Goosey, goosey gander, where shall I wander? Upstairs, downstairs, and in my lady's chamber. There I met an old man who wouldn't say his prayers. I took him by the left leg and threw him down the stairs. The origins of this nursery rhyme are said to date back to the 16th century and refer to the necessity of Catholic priests having to hide in priest's holes in people's homes in order to perform last rites or perform any ceremony that required the use of Latin. Those priest's holes are found in many of the great houses built in those times in the mid-17th century. One means of dealing with priests, once they were discovered, was to grab them by the left leg and throw them down a long flight of stairs. Most of these attacks were performed by Protestant roundheads, soldiers, and they often proved fatal. Then there's Georgie Porgy putting in pie, kisses all the girls and made them cry. And when the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. Here's a great explanation from albertjackchat.com. Georgie Porgie, pudding and pie, kissed all the girls and made them cry. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgie ran away. There is a sinister undertone to this nursery rhyme. Georgie Porgie really seems to be up to no good, otherwise the girls would not be crying, and he wouldn't have to run away when the boys came out to play. So what's it all about then? There are two Georgies whose stories fit the events. One was George Villiers, from 1592 to 1628, the handsome son of an insignificant nobleman, but who soon climbed his own way into the court of James I and the king's favor. Aged just 23, he was given the somewhat unnerving position of gentleman of the bedchamber. Rumor had it that he and the king were more than good friends, It certainly would explain why within two years he'd been made an earl and then a marquess. Five years later, aged just thirty-one, Georgie became the first Duke of Buckingham, proving quite clearly that the king's bedchamber was the place to be for any aspiring nobleman in the early seventeenth century. The nursery rhyme is said to mock both James I and George Villiers over their open romantic interest in each other. In fact, the king even proclaimed to the Privy Council that you may be sure that I love the Duke of Buckingham more than anybody else, and I wish not to have it thought to be a defect. Although the king once announced that homosexuality was among the crimes that, quote, we are bound in conscience never to forgive, end quote, it is now believed by historians studying court diaries and correspondence that the pair were indeed very, very close. The king even called Georgie, my sweet child, and wife, as if to emphasize the point. Ah, those great kings of England! But George was also known to be partial to both sexes, and had many affairs with both the young ladies of court, and the wives and daughters of other powerful Englishmen, causing resentment all around, although his relationship with the king gave him a certain amount of immunity, let's say. It had also been whispered that he often took advantage of his privileged position, and forced his affections upon the said ladies, causing outrage. That's where the poem says, kissed the girls and made them cry, while managing to avoid confrontation or retaliation. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgie ran away. George Villiers' luck eventually ran out when, in 1672, he became embroiled in military matters and led an unsuccessful campaign on behalf of James's son, Charles I, during which the former rent boy made good actually lost over 4,000 men out of an army of 7,000. On his return to Portsmouth, he was stabbed to death by one of the wounded soldiers who was furious at his commander's lack of military judgment and the loss of so many of his English comrades. Georgie Porgy was finally laid to rest at Westminster Abbey later that year. Another candidate for the real Georgie Porgy is the Prince Regent George IV, the hapless son with half an inch of brain, of mad King George Third, See the grand old Duke of York. Immensely fat, Georgie Porgy, puddin' and pie. His corset wearing was the source of constant ridicule and satirical cartoons. By 1797, his weight had reached 17 and a half stone, and by 1824, his corsets were being made for a waist of 50 inches. This George was unquestionably heterosexual but he took as much advantage of his position as George Villiers had done. He had a roving eye. Attractive female visitors to the parties he gave at the pavilion in Brighton were often advised to avoid being left alone with him. His checkered love life involved several mistresses, illegitimate children, and even bigamy. He had an official wife, Carolyn of Brunswick, whom he detested so much he even banned her from his coronation, and an unofficial wife, Maria Ann Pitsherbert. As she was both a Catholic and a commoner, their marriage was not formally recognized and remained a secret. And he managed to make both women miserable, kissed the girls, and made them cry. In addition, although George loved watching prize fighting, which in those days was bare-knuckle boxing, which at that time was illegal, his own physical and emotional cowardice was legendary. This is illustrated by a story of the most infamous prize fight of the day where one contestant died of his injuries. George was known to have been present, as he was included in a sketch of the match by James Gilray, the famous political cartoonist of the day. But when the man died, he ran away, terrified of being implicated in the fallout and attempting to conceal his presence at the match. And that might have inspired the line, When the boys come out to play, Georgie Porgie ran away. AND FINALLY AN INNOCENT ONE FROM ALBERT JACK'S, THE DARK HISTORY OF NURSERY RHYMES. MARY HAD A LITTLE LAMB, ITS FLEECE WAS WHITE AS SNOW, AND EVERYWHERE THAT MARY WENT, THE LAMB WAS SURE TO GO. IT FOLLOWED HER TO SCHOOL ONE DAY, WHICH WAS AGAINST THE RULE. IT MADE THE CHILDREN LAUGH AND PLAY TO SEE A LAMB AT SCHOOL. AND SO THE TEACHER TURNED IT OUT, BUT STILL IT LINGERED NEAR, AND WAITED PATIENTLY ABOUT, TILL MARY DID APPEAR. Why does the lamb love Mary so? The eager children cry. Because Mary loves the lamb, you know. The teacher did reply. The imagery and names used in this poem point to its having been constructed as a Christian homily for children. Such rhymes were extremely popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. So popular, in fact, that William Blake used the form as a template for his famous Songs of Innocence and Experience, published in 1794. Think of little lamb who made thee and tiger, tiger, burning bright. Mary, of course, is the name of Christ's mother and one of the most commonly used images for Jesus is that of the Lamb of God and fleece, as white as snow, a symbol of his goodness and purity. The poem can be read as a parable of Christ's enduring love for mankind. Why does the Lamb love Mary so? That he is with Christians everywhere and everywhere that Mary went the Lamb was sure to go, and that the true Christian should love God and ignore other people's mockery. It made the children laugh and play. In the style of these homilies, the teacher would have used Mary's story explicitly to draw this improving moral, spelt out in the final verse. To see how the poem came about, we need to go back to the early 19th century. It was reported in the 1902 edition of the New York Times Book Review, that when Dr. Lowell Mason introduced singing into Boston schools in 1827, he asked noted writers to contribute songs and rhymes, and one of the contributors was Sarah Josepha Hale. Her life spanned between 1788 and 1879. Who supplied Mary Had a Little Lamb? The rhyme proved so popular that many found it hard to believe it wasn't based on a true incident. Indeed, Mrs. Hale had hinted as much, when in 1913 the New York Times ran an interview with Richard K. Powers of Lancaster, Massachusetts, who was celebrating his 108th birthday. He talked about Mary Had a Little Lamb and commented, Mary was my cousin. Her full name was Mary Elizabeth Sawyer. Mary Sawyer had written a complete account at the age of 88. Here is her story in her own words. One cold, bleak March morning, I went out with Father to the barn and found a lamb that had been born in the night. It had been forsaken by its mother, and through neglect was about dead from the cold, and for want of food. I saw it had a little life, and wanted to take it into the house, but father said no, as it was about dead anyway, and could only live for a short time. But I could not bear to see the poor little thing supper so, and I teased until I got it into the house, and then worked on my mother's sympathy. At first it could not swallow, and the catnip tea I had mother make It could not take for a long time. I got the lamb warm first thing, which was done by wrapping her in an old garment and holding her in my arms beside the fireplace. All night long I nursed the lamb, and at night it could swallow just a little. In the morning, much to my girlish delight, it could stand and then improved rapidly. It soon learned to drink milk, and from the time it could walk about it would follow me anywhere if I called it. "'It was a fast grower, as symmetrical a sheep who ever walked, "'and its fleece was of the finest and whitest. "'Why, I used to take as much care of it as a mother would of a child. "'I used to wash it regularly, keep the burdocks out of its feet, "'and comb and trim with bright-colored ribbons the wool on its forehead. "'And when that was being done, the lamb would hold down its head, "'shut its eyes, and wait as patiently as it could be. "'Then my brother Nate said, "'Let's take the lamb to school with us.' "'When the schoolhouse was reached, "'the teacher had not arrived, "'but a few scholars were there. "'I took her down to my seat. "'You know we had the old-fashioned "'high-boarded seats back then. "'Well, I put the lamb under the seat "'on a blanket, and she lay down "'just as quietly as could be. "'By and by, I had to get up to recite "'and left the lamb all right, "'but in a minute there was a clatter, "'clatter upon the floor, and I knew "'it was the pattering of the hooves of my lamb.' Oh, how mortified I felt! The teacher laughed outright, and of course all the children giggled. It was rare sport for them, but I couldn't find anything mirthful in the situation at the time. I was too embarrassed and ashamed to even laugh or smile. I took the lamb out and put it in the shed until I was ready to go home at noon, when it followed me back. Visiting the school that forenoon was a young man called John Rowlstone. He was very pleased at the school incident, and the next day he rode across the fields on horseback, came to the little old schoolhouse, and handed me a slip of paper which had written on it three verses, which are the original lines, but since then there have been other verses added by a Mrs. Townsend. While there may be some dispute about whether Ralstone Stone wrote any part of the poem, or whether Sarah Hale composed the whole thing, Massachusetts has nonetheless claimed the rhyme and the consequent increase in their tourist industry and both Mary Sawyer's house in Sterling, until it burned down in 2007, and the small redstone school, have been preserved as a memorial. Today, in Sterling Town Center, there stands a statue of a lamb in tribute to John Rowlstone, and displaying the first verse of the poem. Incidentally, footnote, Mary Sawyer's little lamb, a ewe, apparently lived to be four years old, and had three of her own baby lambs. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com or join in the discussion at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. It's time for mail call here at 1001heroes, and here are our latest reviews. Starting off with this one, five stars, taking me away from Audible. So many great stories, it's hard to get back to my Audible library. Great guy, great show, great stories. Keep up the good work, John. Amazing. Your fan, Chip. And that from Rigged Spin Wheel, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, awesome. Siempre Interesante, meaning always interesting. That from Tatloani, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, Informative and incredible, interesting podcast. I love it. Fantastic podcast, informative, entertaining, just an enjoyable experience, and the podcaster has a fantastic voice and makes learning so much fun. That one from Shane O'Lear, Apple Podcasts, US. And this one, five stars, best of the best. One of the best podcasts currently out there. I enjoy the diverse collection. Keep up the great work. That from nick 5963 UT. Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Thankful Father, five stars. Believe it or not, my teenage daughters and I enjoy listening to these stories while making the two-hour drive to Grandma's cozy lake cabin in western Maryland. We enjoy discussing them afterwards and no doubt have bonded over these family-friendly stories. Pittsburgh Dad. That from New Ken Fan, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars, solid. Over time, I've developed a handful of go-to podcasts I enjoy listening to, and this one is a definite rock I keep coming back to again and again. An interesting and wide range of subjects will keep your interest peaked, and you may find it hard to stop listening. A big thanks to John for all his work. That from PR Man, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars? I'm so glad I found this podcast network. John Hagedorn is great. Love his voice and the way he can tell a story. I listen all the time, and I'm sure you would too, if you give it a try. That from Max J, 1978, Apple Podcasts, US. And this one, a great collection of yarns. I love a well-told story, and this podcast delivers just that. Well-told, intricate, researched, and entertaining stories. I tip my hat to you, but can I ask for a few more Australian stories? That from Steve OB, 69, Apple Podcasts, Australia. And this one, great podcast. Five stars. Excellent podcast. Very engaging stories and awesome presentation. Can't stop listening. That one from IWV0362 Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, one of the best podcasts of all time. Mr. Hagedorn does a wonderful job of painting a vivid mental picture of some of the most interesting historical subjects of all time. I find his choice in topics to be fantastic. I've even let my daughter, Alyssa, age 11, listen to some of the podcasts, and she actually listens to the immersive tales without complaint. Amazing, because none of his stories so far are about Taylor Swift. If you have to pick one podcast to keep you entertained for the day, you will love, love, love the time you spend listening to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. That one from D. Marie Hugh via Apple Podcasts US. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to sit down and do these reviews for 1001 Heroes. We appreciate it so very, very, very much, and it helps us in the rankings so that new listeners find us. Thank you again. Stay tuned next Sunday night at 8 p.m. for The Flying Tigers, the incredible story of the American mercenary pilots who flew for China in the early days of World War II, giving the Allies their first victories against the Japanese who had attacked China in 1937 and dominated the air above China until Claire Lee Chenault and all his volunteer pilots in their P-40s started hammering Japanese all around China and Burma. It's a great story, and you don't want to miss it. One more thing, and then we'll get to the blooper. I've been expanding that shop I mentioned a few weeks ago to include engraved stainless steel dog tags, which I've been making for fun. I had an idea to create... Roman dog tags, which have a Latin inscription on one side and the English translation on the reverse. I started with some good ones for kids. Surfs up and never tickle a sleeping dragon. Take a look at etsy.com. That's E T S Y dot com forward slash shop forward slash the 1001 store. Prices start around 15 bucks for my dog tags. It's a fun side business. If you have a short phrase you'd like us to do, Give me an email, I'll be glad to do it. It's 1001 podcast at gmail.com. It's just some fun on the side for me. I'll always stay podcasting, so no worries. Give our new shop a like when you stop by. We'd appreciate it if you would. Thanks. The link is in the show notes for you. And now, our blooper. But we'd also give it all the soothing bedtime story qualities of a child imagining his own head crowning from his... (laughs) (laughs) Of a child imagining his own head, crowning from his... Uh, Let's just cut that one. Oh, heck. But would also give it all the soothing bedtime story qualities of a child imagining his own head, crowning from his mommy's nether regions. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.